Hello and welcome to The Hidden Lives of Writers. My name's Fiona Snickers and I'm talking to Gail Schimmel. Well, I think it's Gail, but she's been playing with the robots lately, so I'm not sure. Is this the real Gail or the AI Gail? How do we know the difference? Fiona, I was so inspired by what Gus Silber said to us the other day, and I went and I started playing with chat, and I can never remember what the initials are, GPD. Yes. Chat GPD. And I did a little experiment where I, ha- I have a thing that I have to ask questions where I have to do an interview. Mm-hmm. And I put the topic that I had to do an interview into the chat GP- GPD, GPT. GPT um, yes. And it came out with the most brilliant questions. And it's extraordinary and I'm inspired and I'm particularly inspired by, you know, Gus's attitude to greeting change with a positive attitude has I feel like something shifted fundamentally in my head after we spoke to him I said it had made an impression on me but I can really feel it playing out um, let's see how long it lasts but for the moment I'm suddenly I'm the person who's going to try everything with chat GPD T but I'm never <laughs> going to get that right <laughs> how has your week been Fiona have you played with the robots I haven't played with the robots yet, but I'm very tempted. Um, I'm remembering what Gus said about how he has a feeling of awe and how awe is a combination of wonder and fear. So I may be slightly more in the fear category for now. (laughs) Um, But yeah, as soon as you stop thinking, this thing is so good, it can replace me. And you start thinking, this thing is so good, it can help me. Exactly. It is a fundamental mind shift, and I do want to get started um, and just use it for brainstorming. Mm. You know, instead mm. of quietly brainstorming inside my own slow brain, I can <laughs> brainstorm with this thing and get some very sparky good ideas very, very quickly. And it's fast. It's, yeah. That was one of the things that I couldn't believe. So so you put your question in and then there's a moment where it kind of is calibrating. And I thought, okay, I better leave it to claw around the internet looking for things now. Yeah. And then suddenly it starts writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really is extraordinary. Um, I'm, I'm very inspired. So has your writing been as fast as ChatGPT or has it been slow this week? Okay. <laughs> so, you know, I've been trying to follow this very ambitious a thousand words a day. Mm. I lost track of the thing I always tell people. If you aren't realistic, yeah. you're going to fail. Right, right. I wasn't realistic. Currently, I'm failing. Um, but I have written more than I normally write in a week so far this week. So it's okay. But nothing. I'm not going to meet that thousand words a week. I also had abandoned my don't work over weekends. Okay. Um, and I thought I was going to abandon that. Mm-hmm. And this weekend, I came to a crashing halt with writing a thousand words a day. I actually just can't write over weekends at that pace. There's no way. So I've had a reality check, and I think that's important. Um, and then I've also been knee-deep in various types of edits. And I wanted to ask you mm-hmm. how you feel about editing. So you you mean a formal edit where there's an editor out there working on your Someone, stuff, and, and now you've got to kind of... Someone uh, coming and that. putting that red pen through your work and criticizing what you've done and praising what you've done. I love it. I love someone coming into my world and helping me, but I was wondering what you feel about it. It can be a lot of fun and very stimulating. And then there are times where I feel the need to push back, like I really believe in a thing that I've done. 
and I try to be judicious about it. Like mm. nine out of ten times, accept the correction and do it gracefully. And that one out of ten times, just push back a little bit and see if the editor is really sure that this thing needs to go or be changed or, you know, maybe they'll concede and say, okay, I'll let you have that one. And I think that normally, in my experience, do concede. You find they were just making a suggestion rather than destroying your dream. <laughs> uh, it's interesting you say that I had one book where I fought hard on a major point mm-hmm. and then felt that I had to concede every other point. Yes. So I did a lot yes. of work on that book, but I kept the thing that was really fundamental to me about the story. Yeah, it's, it is a case of picking your battles and, and go to war over the important things. And your writing week otherwise? Well, this is actually very apropos because I am busy doing a rewrite on a book that I really thought had been put to bed and was about to go into production. And then we got feedback that American publishers and American filmmakers felt that the inciting incident was just too touchy, too incendiary, and that they wouldn't touch it. Uh, with a barge pole and that I needed to change this incident if I was to have any hope of taking this project international in any way. And it's been a hard pill to swallow, Mm. but it's not as though this incident was absolutely close to my heart and kind of the entire point of the manuscript. Uh, so I felt as though there was room for flexibility there and just it was more of a tweak than a major change. But it's a tweak that runs through the whole oh. manuscript and I can't just do a search and replace. I've actually got to read it line by line and see every mention or reference to the previous inciting incident and change it to the new incident. And it's a big job. It's time consuming. Um, I think I've said before I was already tired of this manuscript <laughs> before I had to read it all over again. Um, so, yeah, it, it was one of those where I didn't want to throw roadblocks in my own way. Uh, it wasn't like um, Nikim Plongo said to us that, that this was a change that was really important to him yes. and he wanted to keep it his way and he fought for it. And I thought about that, you know, was I sort of giving way to the filthy capitalists Mm. or giving up my principles? And I I don't think it was as clear as that. You know, I'm going to be honest. I'll give way to the filthy capitalists (laughs) if the filthy capitalists give me their filthy capital. Um, I I don't have that level of pride. I mean, there are things I think I would not stoop to. But generally, if it's a suggestion about storyline like that, although that does sound like a hard one. Yes, it, it wasn't easy and it's, it's a difficult fix. But in principle, as long as we do it seamlessly, I don't think it's going to lessen the impact of the book such as it is. Um, so I'm, I'm feeling okay about it. It's just such a headache. And it delays local publication, I'm sure. Yes. So now it's hanging in the balance whether this book locally is going to be released this year or next year, which is very disappointing. That is very disappointing, especially for your readers. (laughs) I'm personally disappointed and hurt by this development. (laughs) Fiona, what have you been doing to fill up the tank this week? Well, I went to have a rewatch of White Lotus to the second season of White Lotus. I'm so jealous. We've forgotten our Showmax login password oh, and dear. we can't <laughs> find White Lotus anywhere. <laughs> um, so 
I really enjoyed it the first time I watched it. And I, I thought it had something interesting to teach me about story. So I went back to look at it again. And indeed it does. Um, it really showcases the power of the ambiguous storyline. There's a scene that sort of becomes a central dispute in the show. Uh, it features the actress Aubrey Plaza. Did she or did she not do a certain thing? Okay. And it's left ambiguous. We see her version of it. We see the version that her husband suspects her of. We see the version that the third party is telling us happened. And it, everybody is kind of convincing in their own way, but they can't all be right. And we never see a kind of uh, neutral third person, this is what really happened. And it remains a kind of central dispute and a lot of ink has been spilled by TV columnists about it. And it was just such a powerful thing to do, mm. to take something and really leave it unresolved and ambiguous. I'm not sure if I have the courage to do it, but it, it's a very interesting approach. I'm a big fan of an ambiguous end. I love it. I'm often made to write away my ambiguous ends. If I had my way, most of my books would end completely ambiguously. I love it. I love it. And I love it when you read a book or watch a show and three weeks later you wake up and you're like, maybe though and you're still yeah, thinking yeah. about what could have happened it's it's i just think that's a lovely it's a lovely thing to do to read it makes the world stay with them yeah 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 so that's something i'm interested in and how about you what have you been watching or listening to or reading so i've got two things i wanted to tell you about the first is i I've been, you know, I'm a bit scared at the moment of very serious reads, but I made myself put on my big girl panties and read the new Celeste Ng, which is called Our Missing Hearts. Oh, right. And yes. I love her work, but this is a whole new level. She, she takes us into a dystopian near future where the U.S. has turned completely against Asian and particularly Chinese people. Mm -hmm. And so it's taking something that's already there yes, and amplifying it. Um, and obviously Celeste Ng is Chinese, um, so this is something that is close to her heart. But it's just, it's a very powerful story about a child who, when we meet him at the beginning, his Chinese mother has abandoned him. Um, and we get a sense from the beginning that it might be for his own safety. Right. Um, and then we follow the, the story of him wanting and needing his mother and discovering who his mother is. And one of the very interesting aspects as we, as we look at the form of protests that happen in South Africa is that they use art mm -hmm. as a protest form in the book. Right. Um, you know, enormous, um, weavings hung between trees of blood and just, just extraordinary things. And, and the, the climax of the book involves a form of artist protest that I found extraordinary. But to, to say what it was, um, would be a spoiler. So I loved that. And Great. then on a completely different note, I've been so inspired and, I didn't think I would. So my daughter's school had a talk by Brent Lindeku, who is mm -hmm. the good things guy. Oh, is that how you pronounce it? I've seen <laughs> it on the page. I wasn't at all sure. <laughs> that is indeed how you pronounce it. Um, and I really, I wasn't in a space where I felt like being cheered up. I felt like having my my impressions that everything is falling apart mm -hmm. um, reinforced because that's how I was feeling and I went off quite grumpily to watch and like he's not going to get me with his jolly optimistic views mm -hmm. and he was 
absolutely inspiring. He doesn't deny how shit everything is. Yes. But then he talks about how one can help. And the big thing that makes an impression, as he talked about, and he's written an article about this that I think most people have seen, about instead of saying, I have to, Mm -hmm. saying, I get to. Right. And it completely reframes your reality. I don't have to do a podcast this morning. I get to do a podcast this morning. I mean, how amazing is that? Right. Um, and when you do that tweak to everything, it's really, really very inspiring. Okay. Well, I think our, our guest will be on the same page because she's an inspiring and optimistic person. Our guest today is Pamela Power. You know her from her novels. Uh, there was Misconception in 2015 then Things Unseen in 2016, Delilah Now Trending in 2017, and then in 2022, Pam brought out the novel Chasing Marion with her co-writers, Gail Schimmel, Amy Haydenrich, and Carnita Loxton, and now most recently her memoir, My Year of Not Getting Shitfaced, um, is available now, published by Jonathan Ball. Hi, Pam, and welcome. So exciting to have you here, Pam. I think this is such a brilliant idea, guys. Thanks so much for inviting me. Okay, Pam, how has your writing week been? Okay, can I lie on the floor and scream? <laughs> it has been nightmare crazy because we are. I'm winding up one show, which has been cancelled, and we are working on like six episodes a week on another show and then a third show where I am writing a script a week on Then I have to write a blog and then I'm promoting my book, my year of not getting shit-faced. So yeah, that's been my insane week. Yeah. That's quite a week. Suddenly my thousand words is seeming <laughs> quite a, quite a normal and calm thing to do. Yeah, no, that, that is hectic, Pam. How are you holding it all together? As you see me, <laughs> lying on the floor <laughs> screaming. As you see me, I just wrote a blog about how much I hate stupid people. So that was, yeah. Then I had to go and do a meditation on kindness because I felt so bad. Um, but yeah, my, my patience is wearing thin. I mean, that, that's the life of a TV writer, I have to say. Um, I was laughing about it with one of the producers just saying like the kids who come into the industry think it's so glamorous, like you see award shows and everything. Mm-hmm. But in fact, the reality is just really we all workaholics and all we do is work all the time. I think that that leads to my first question, which is to tell us your, your superhero origin story. How did you come to be a TV writer and a fiction writer and a memoir writer? Let's not limit this. You are many types <laughs> of writer. Um, to, how did you get from, from just being a person to being this glamorous writer person? Oh, I'm so glamorous. The glamour's killing me. Um, so I started out by doing Originally, I, I was, I danced. So that was my thing. I wanted to be a dancer. So that was the first job I ever had. Um, was that out of school? Yeah. Right out of school. Oh, no, no, sorry. That was actually after university. Okay. So I was what, a dancer at a safari as? park. Oh, as wow. one does. As one is. But what I trained as, so, so I did ballet and I did mm-hmm. contemporary dancing. And, um, and then I eventually got bored with it. I didn't really have the body or the feet for it. 
gave it up, I think, in matric. Um, and then I found drama. Mm-hmm. I'd also done sort of drama privately. It was at the stage when I was at school, we didn't have drama um, as a subject mm-hmm. at schools. So my father would not let me go to the art, ballet, and music school. He said I had to get a proper matric, <laughs> which I did, and then swanned off to university and did drama. Funny that. So, and at that time as well, it's quite interesting. The psychologist I went to for an assessment said that I should be a writer, but again, at that stage, you couldn't do creative writing yeah, at university. Yeah. So I did drama, and then I sort of really – I think I majored in dance and acting for my first degree. Um, yeah, and that's kind of how it started. Then I worked as a dancer, then I went overseas, came back, did my honors, um, went even more sort of um, into acting, I think, and then moved up to Joburg because this was in Maritzburg. And um, and I think like as a writer, the first – the first sort of examples of writing I did were plays at university. In fact, if I cast my mind back, it was we couldn't afford to buy the rights for plays. Something something mm. had shifted. I don't remember what it was. But so we had to start creating our own work. Right. And that's kind of how I started writing. Then I uh, moved up to Joburg. I had a stint of being unemployed, then working as an actor, um, started my own little kids touring company you know going to schools whatever and wrote the plays wrote the music and everything for that so that was sort of my segue and then um and then my husband was doing like a mini MBA at Vitz if I remember correctly and my child was my firstborn was a year old and I was so irritated that he was studying because he was gone all weekend that I did my master's I was that. That's kind of my motivation for doing my a masters. revenge master. It was a re- you. It was. You can do a mini. M- I am going to go and do my masters because now I'm so irritated. So that's kind of. Um, I think. Oh yes, and then my kinder music teacher, my kinder music teacher, my firstborn's kinder music teacher, came to watch the play because this was the first um, intake of the creative writing masters at um, Fitz. Um, and the kinder music teacher came to watch the play I wrote. Did not like it, I think, actually, but they needed writers on, um, generations, a soapy. And she said, do you want to try out for that? And I was like, yeah, why the hell not? And, um, and that's really how it started. And that was 20 years ago. So. Yeah. So if somebody is in school now and has got zero connections, not any kind of Nepo baby, wants <laughs> to write for TV, what route would you recommend? What should they be doing? Other than finding a different career that pays. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do it. Don't do it. No, no. Um, I Listen, I'm obviously a huge believer in people going to university or um, college or whatever and actually studying towards it. But in terms of really learning the ropes, um, I think you need to first of all watch – okay, the thing about South Africa, it's not, it's not the same as um, other places where you can probably make a living off dramas or whatever here. It's mainly soapies. We have a huge telenovela and soapy culture. Right. So that's really how most TV writers earn their bread and butter. Um, so you have to watch them. Right. You've got to watch all of them. 
you write to the production houses, you try and get an internship. Um, we've literally given people work who have become sort of committed fans of the show and obviously also have studied or whatever, and then they've been offered internships. So they do um, advertise for internships. I know Clive Morris Productions just did. So that's the kind of thing you you have to do. But you, I mean, I've got writers now who are doing so well, who I kind of mentored, who started off as runners. You know, right. so you get in however you can. If it's as an extra, I worked as an extra because you need to learn the ropes. You know, TV is very technical. So all of these sort of methods of getting in, you, you find anyway, you go and make tea. You offer your services for free if you can and you, you know, you wait on the side. But I do think that studying first is, is kind of your best avenue, obviously. Right. So you um, get a tertiary education. And then you look at a way into the I do the think industry. that's best. And also because a lot of our work requires research and your varsity degree will teach you how to do that. People kind of don't realize um, how much research is involved. I'm interested in that. Give me an example of something you'd have to research. So just now I was on the phone to an advocate um, try, and you legal eagle types, and I'm looking at you, Shim, um, don't get how confusing it is for us civilians. Um, so I was like saying to her, okay, this is a, so this case, is it prosecuted? Is it high court? Is it the magistrate's court? Is it your, is it your lordship? Is it your worship? What is it? Are they wearing a robe? Is it an attorney? Is it an advocate? And I ask her these questions all the time. I mean, she's sick of me, but I do feel like I could go and work as her paralegal by now after <laughs> three years. But yeah, so it's stuff like that. So I'm very experienced in that. And then my other thing is with the doctor, right? Mm. Talk to me about opioids, right? What does they, what does this person look like when they've taken this overdose? So obviously on some of the shows, um, it's more sort of high, what I call high soapy. So you can do a Google search and, you know, work out what's going on and it won't be strictly accurate or whatever but you know how many brain tumors can the same character get you would be so surprised (laughs) you would be so surprised and you've got to try and remember like what they had oh did but they've already had a brain tumor (laughs) was that the twin who came back from the dead you know yeah but yeah so those are sort of examples fantastic i love it um, I know that an integral part of writing for soap operas is building suspense by means of cliffhangers. And I once heard you give a very fascinating talk that still lives with me about using cliffhangers to create tension. And, you know, I always think of a cliffhanger as this dramatic thing that happens right at the end and leaves the audience hanging and wanting more. But the way you explained it, there's a way of building mini cliffhangers into a narrative. Even just the way you end a conversation or piece of dialogue can be a kind of cliffhanger. So perhaps you can tell us a bit more about that. Well, I mean, just in, in building um, building an episode, mm-hmm. every every scene literally has to leave the audience wanting more. So every scene needs to leave the audience wanting more just before ad break, you've got to leave the audience wanting more. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the episode, absolutely. And at the end of the week. So your Friday night will always be your biggest cliffhanger because we want right. the viewers to come back on Monday. Or we'll be even more sort of analytical than that. We sit with the analytics and we got we go, okay, our biggest rival 
is on Thursday night. We've got to have a kick-ass cliffhanger to actually on Wednesday. Mm, right. So that they all want to come and watch on Thursday. Right. So, you know, you, you become very sort of analytical about that. And and also, you know, j- just trying to think like, is this so, – so usually you will end – so we have like three different story strands, say ABC. Mm-hmm. A is your big fat story, B is your medium one, and C is your light funny one. Right. So generally speaking, you're going to end on your A story, you know, where the, the big murder is happening or the brain tumor or whatever, you know, da-da-da-da, who, who did it sort of thing. But sometimes what you'll find is that you'll look through the episode and you'll go, this is actually not very exciting. So I'm now going to move my B or C to the end. Right. Um, so, so it's quite, it's quite like cold in a way. <laughs> Technical, <laughs> strategic, analytical. Thank you. I like that word. Strategic. <laughs> yeah. I'm interested in that exactly as you've been talking. I've been thinking about the strategy because I've always wondered about this as well. How far, how far are you planned? Because obviously you're talking about reacting to the analytics, reacting to what's happening in other soaps, reacting to what your viewers are doing, but you also have had to plan a story arc I'm presuming quite carefully or or do story arcs just take wild turns in the middle to to try and make them more exciting how much planning is there versus how much pantsing is there in writing for TV you know there's both there's both so how it works is we all sit down and we have a brainstorm every quarter and that's everybody the storyliners the writers me script editor head writer producers we sit down and we plan this sort of Big arc. So it would be a bit like us, like if you are a plotter with a novel, sitting down and planning the whole thing. Okay, so th- so that's how the plan mm-hmm. goes. But the problem is, of course, when you're working in a group, um, and some people have more power than other people. So like if Channel says they don't like something, well, then it's not going to fly, or the executive producers or whatever. So you've got to try and convince people of your sort of story. And I suppose maybe it's a bit like us with a publisher or an agent mm. um, in terms of fiction. Like you've got to pitch your how you think something should go. So then you've sort of got this big plan. Then the storyliners are going to go away. So then everybody's going to give notes on that. You have to implement those notes. And then the storyliners are going to go away and they're going to break that down into beats, which are then fleshed out and are then um, back up into beats. Yes, what tell us mean? about beats. Beats. So a beat is sort of something that moves the story forward. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you, yeah, so you break your story down into that. Is um, it like events or? It can be, or it can be emotional beats. It can be emotional beats as well. So it really does depend. So it can be things like, you know, obviously a huge beat is, and then he killed her. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he kissed her. Exactly. Right. Whatever. So, so it can be an action, sad. it can be an action <laughs> beat, but it, it could also be, you know, the person then reacting to the death or whatever. Um, so it can be quite a subtle thing. So you have to break that down. So we'll say things like, oh, there's a beat missing. And I'm sure I actually did that with Chasing Marion. Did I ever say that to you guys? Not to me. It feels like there's a beat missing. So when you feel like something's jumped, right. um, we'll okay. say like there's a beat missing here. Or I think we've m- missed a few beats or something. So that's kind of how we plot things out. Was it, what was the question? What are we talking about? It was what a beat was, but you were in the middle of something 
I was trying to plan like how we and pantsing. How much do you? Yes, so yes, 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 the yes. So, so, so then you have your breakdowns, everything. That goes to your writers, and your writers write the scripts, and then it comes to me, and then I've got a script editor, whatever, and. I've got to just sort of make decisions as well as a script editor, like, hmm, this ain't going to fly. Oh, our advocate doesn't like that. Our doctor doesn't like that. Whatever. Okay. So that's where the pantsing comes in because I'll have the producer on the phone saying, production needs these scripts. This actor can only shoot this weekend, pull all those scenes, blah, 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 blah. So then I've just got to make a decision, like, blah, 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 blah. So that's where the, the pantsing comes in. So you can have everything plotted and then – an actor gets a Netflix series. Um, oh, okay. They'll be dying after all. We thought they were staying until the end of the series. They are no longer. So and then you've got to rewrite the whole rewrite. That's why, it. I mean, you see me often saying, Pamela, rewrite power because, you know, my life is rewriting. Yeah. And is it fun when that happens? In on a, I mean, I understand that it's very hard work, but is there also an element of, Oh, we thought that he was going to be the hero of the second half of the season and now he has to die. This is quite fun. We can, we can resurrect a new plot line or is it just horrible hard work? If the act is super irritating and they've actually been causing a lot of cuck on set, then it's, then there won't be devastation. But there's usually devastation just because our deadlines are so tight. And the work involved. And like now, as we get to sort of writing the end of the series, we all just want to kill each other because we're so tired and so stressed and whatever. Because it doesn't matter. And that's the thing. You know, I mean, I've been doing this for 20 years. So now I know. Like at the beginning, I was sort of hopeful and new (laughs) and like, I'm sure these rewrites, you know, this is unusual. No, no. So when people kind of go, you know, we've got to find a way to make sure this doesn't happen next season, I'm like, bitch please you know like it's it happens every season like let's not kid ourselves yeah. here something will always go wrong you've, you've just got to accept that you know um i've been learning a bit about writing for the screen lately and i've been learning about the payoff and i'm interested in how that works for soap operas and i'm trying to think of a way to phrase this that isn't sexual but I think I'm, I'm going to have no, to, no, please phrase I'm it. I have to go with the sexual metaphor, okay? Um, soap operas seem to be a lot of foreplay. <laughs> and when do we get to the climax? Um, how do you balance the constant cliffhangers, the constantly unresolved storylines versus the audience's need to climax slash have a payoff? Do you kind of wind storylines up? How do you decide that? How do you balance the cliffhanger versus the chaos? I think it's a little bit like who was saying that whole thing about romance writing? I can't remember. Was it somebody on Twitter? Was it Missy Falker was saying about that whole happy for now thing? Not happy ever after, after, happy for now. Yes. And I think that's, that's a very good way of describing it. So, you know, you, you can have that they need to have that sort of moment of happiness or whatever, but literally like they'll have that wedding, the moment of happiness, and then the groom drops dead. Right. Do you know what I mean? So you're not going to hold it for very long. So it's a very short climax. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Short, but so satisfying. <laughs> um, yeah. So I'm, I'm just trying to think of different examples, but, but sometimes also, and then it kind of becomes an intuitive thing where you go, you know, we've been using this actor too much or whatever, or they, mm. you know, 
like seven brain tumors is too much. Let's calm down now. They need, they need actually um, a bit of peace in their life. And then you might give them like a light story. So you kind of have to, that, that is more an intuitive thing, which I think, you know, we share across fiction and writing for screen where you've got to go. And I don't know if you've ever felt this in a film where it's like, no man, this character is suffering too much now. It's mm. actually, it's enough. I can't actually watch this anymore. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. You, you talk there about, about the segue from writing for screenwriting for fiction. And that's what you did in your life. You, you have now, you've written, get, let me get this right, three novels and one shared novel. One collaboration. Um, is that correct? Yeah. One memoir. That's yeah. my maths. That's um, what I've got done. <laughs> so and how- two unpublished books. No, two and a half unpublished books. I think it's so Pam, important Pam, to say we that start, we can't start counting the unpublished <laughs> books. We have to, so people know it is important. I feel very strongly so about they go and the study a BCom. <laughs> <laughs> I feel strongly about the learning power of the unpublished books. Mm. But so you, you, you sit down. You, you decided to write a book of fiction. How difficult was that transition from writing to the screen to writing Misconception, which is more or less a work of fiction? More or less. Very much inspired by your life. I'm sort of interested in that as a kind of early form of memoir for you, but it, but it was fiction. Um, well, let's think. You see, at that time, I had already written plays, but I hadn't actually written for TV because this all happened at the same time. Um, because, so, as part of my master's, I started off in the drama department. Then this creative master's started. So then I switched over to language and literature. So all my modules, my modules were in both. And I was approached around that time to write for TV. So it kind of all okay. sort of started happening together. And then misconception, I had just had the last born and I needed chapters for that um that section. So I was like, well, what am I going to write about? I'm going to write about my life. Boom, 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 because I needed my three chapters. So the inspiration was I had a deadline. And yeah, so so in a way, I mean, listen, let's be honest. It is, I think dialogue and stuff comes easier to me. That is obviously where I work all the time and I've got to work harder on the other bits. Um, so the the world building, the um, mm. setting, the mm. that kind of thing. Mm. Okay. Yeah, that's definitely harder for me than dialogue. Dialogue is easy for me. That's so interesting because I had always imagined your dialogue ability came from the writing from TV, but that's completely wrong. You learned it all at once. No, I think you write actually because think about it. I had been writing plays, mm. so. I mean, it's difficult to say. And you had been acting. You had been. I had been acting. I had been acting. But having said that, you know, I've always been a vociferous reader. Because if you think about it, how how did we learn our fiction writing skills? We learned it because we read. We read so much. That's a lot of it. I feel is intuitive, and it's only after like after you've studied it that you go. Oh, so that's what that is. But I've been doing it for years. But now I have a name for it. You know, it's interesting you say that. We talked about what's it? Hunt the cat, save the cat, kill save the, cat. the cat, save the cat. And <laughs> um, we talked about the method of save the cat in one of our episodes. And 
when I went, I'd, I'd never heard of it. I don't know if you've heard of it. I never heard of no, it. No, we use it as a textbook to teach. Uh, okay. Well, you see that, that, that shows what happens when you start writing just because you started writing and you didn't study it. And then when I went and looked back, I saw I follow, I fo- and I want to say beats. I follow those beats naturally, <laughs> um, yeah. without having learned the technique. So I, so I see what you're saying with that, that it, it, definitely is there's a natural thing that happens if you read a lot I wanted to ask you Pam um so you've written for screen then you write misconception and then you go deep into fiction and then you go back to memoir with each of those things how is your process different your writing process um you know I don't know if my writing, you know, from book to book, if it changed that much, to be honest, I think what changed me was COVID. Interesting. Yeah. I, I tell us more. I, I've always been, you know, I've always sort of written a huge amount and I've always been very disciplined about writing. And, and that might come from TV writing where you are very deadline based. So, I would give myself deadlines and I would hit it. I would say I'm going to write this first draft of a book in three months. Boom. How many words do you write today, Pam? <sighs> that can depend. But I would I would do something where I would give myself like 500 words a day. But then if I had time off, I mean, I think I once wrote 30,000 words in 10 days. Oh. I thought um, you were going to say in one day and I was going to just put my head down and cry. <laughs> hey, you've got nothing to cry about. I know, I know what your output's like. But so I think, I think that it, that probably is from the TV writing. And oddly enough, that was the best 30,000 words. So if I take too long, I actually write crap. Mm. And this is true of me with scripts as well. I've got to, because then I start second guessing, I start editing, everything becomes very bland. I have got to just get it down there. And I used to have this thing, and I'd probably been writing scripts for like 10 years, where every time I sat down to write a script, I had such anxiety, like I'm never going to be able to do this again. I can't do this. Even though I was writing like one or two scripts a week, it would be like, I can't do this. I I don't know. And I realized it was because I was editing the whole time in my head. Mm. And I have to now really just do shitty first draft where I just get everything down. And often when you come back to it, you're like, God, that's not bad, girl. Mm. You know, mm. so yeah, I, I I have kind of found that. But I think I think the thing I do I don't know whether actually to blame social media as well or if it is just COVID. I've been having a lot of thoughts about this and about what did I and of course, it was something I watched on TikTok. <laughs> of course. I was watching something, don't laugh, it's about a plane crash. But this guy was talking about survivor's guilt. And mm. I was like, that's what I'm actually feeling. I have incredible survivor's guilt from COVID. I think it was, you know, I had that writer who died, who was 20 years younger than me. And I was just like, I, yeah, I still can't get my head around it. I lost a lot of colleagues including like a former business partner of mine. And um, and I think that's what's actually hampered my writing in a lot of sense, my, my, my fiction, mm. is this kind of survivor's guilt, this feeling that the world is a mess. Okay, well, this took a dark turn, guys. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we're in the dark. If you read Sethgate, we're in the dark night of the soul now. It's all, it's all going to come right towards the end. But... Um, yeah, so I think, and then I could only read memoir, and I think that's the thing as well, is that I tend to write what I'm reading. 
So I've been loving reading memoir and I've just been watching documentaries. I find it quite hard to sit with fiction and indefinitely anything sad I don't want to be reading about. Um, I don't want to be watching sad things. And But oddly enough, then I'll watch the most awful documentaries. I don't know. But it was definitely uh, probably a psychologist can tell me what's going on there. That is so interesting because <laughs> it's my exact opposite reaction for me. I've had to read extreme fantasy. So okay. I've had to read like urban fantasy. I'm I'm a bit over it now, not entirely, but deep in COVID. I needed zombies and werewolves <laughs> and things like that because they could not happen to me. Mm. I needed things that, so if I read a kind of a domestic noir, the sort of thing I write, it could have happened to me and that made me anxious. But a werewolf is never going to chase me. <laughs> so I can read werewolves happily. So you've done exactly the opposite, but for the same comfort. Yeah, and it was definitely, because obviously I love reading domestic noir, but I just could not go there. And also there's something about concentration. I just can't concentrate. Like I say, I'm not sure whether to blame TikTok or COVID brain, or menopause, or whatever, or the fact that the world is burning. But, yeah. I've noticed that when you have these periods of intense productivity, you tend to announce that you're going on a social media fast, mm -hmm. and specifically a Twitter fast. I know this is something you've done in the past. Has that kind of kick-started the productivity for you? It definitely helps, I think, but... Yeah, I mean, I probably I hadn't thought about that, Fee. Good, good point. Good point. Maybe. I mean, I I have noticed. I actually mentioned it in my blog this morning that my phone's been telling me I've been spending four hours on my phone. So if we oh, say yeah. we say like <laughs> an hour of moderate. that, yeah. <laughs> no, but just think about it. That's like my leisure time. So maybe an hour of that was like WhatsApps and. Business emails and three hours of that. Two, it's uh, a two and a half on TikTok, TikTok, and half an hour on Twitter. I'm afraid since our boy Elon took over, I'm not um, loving Twitter quite as much. Right, right. I've moved yes. on to TikTok now. Not that I understand it, but I love watching. I was about to ask you to explain. No, I it don't to understand us. it at all, but um, but it makes you happy nonetheless. Makes me very happy, especially my tarot card readers. They make me very happy, and watching Taylor Swift. I watch people clean their houses on TikTok. It's very, very soothing. It's called clean talk. And you just watch people squirting handy andy, cleaning surfaces that already look clean to start off with. I can't stand these sort of filthy houses that then get cleaned. It's clean and you clean it some more and then it's sparkling and it is so soothing. Have you spoken to someone about this? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think you should. Yeah, I could understand the dirty house clean. I could see the satisfaction in that. No, a that's clean just house disgusting. Getting cleaner. I, I'm not there with you, Fiona, at all. And also restocking their fridges. But these beautiful, nice. sparkling fridges, and they just restock them with these mysterious American things that I've never seen before, like Lunchables. It's this kind of lunch in a box type thing. It's probably disgusting, very likely is. But just to see all those lunches being packed into the fridge and, they don't just and all the their drinks. They leftovers on top bowl, on top of bowl. No, it's so neat and orderly. And I don't know, it just speaks to me. Well, the, yeah, meditation. Obviously, that's your meditation. It's hey? a form of meditation. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, I'm going to have to learn more about TikTok because I feel like every time I – 
venture into the app. Someone's shaking their bum at me and I get such a fright that I just leave the app immediately. Like, oh, I don't want to see your bum. No, you and have to train them. They, they shake their bum initially and then you train them that you actually want to see people cleaning their houses and then that will be the only content that greets your eyes when you go onto the app. So you have to on, train the app. They work on an assumption that everybody's basic need is bum shaking and then yes. they, they evolve out of that. Yes. I'm Very fascinated now and I want to see the bum shaking. Yeah. I'll turn on my TikTok. Talk. You'll, Please. See some, you'll either see Amy because she's the only person I follow properly or you will see someone shaking their bum at me. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't understand how the following thing works and you can't like retweet it and it's all deeply confusing. But every now and again, I stick a video on it and, you know, because you've got to do your PR bit. But uh, yeah, beyond that, I don't really. And I just, you know, watch endlessly quite a lot of Taylor Swift, a little bit of Selena and Justin. Yeah. That's me, really. I'm a I'm a fifty Swifty, yeah. Um, yeah, I want to talk about your using social media as a marketing strategy because I've always been in awe of the way you do it. It seems to be both very intentional, but also very sincere. You're engaging in a very sincere way with um, the apps, particularly Twitter. Um, and I can understand that you've maybe become a bit jaded with it since Elon took over. But uh, how have you crafted that? Has it has it been just something you did spontaneously, or something you did quite consciously? No, it's, it is it is actually spontaneous, and I suspect it is just another outlet for my sort of actually performing stand-up comic side, right? Um, right. Because yeah, it's not it's not intentional, and in fact, I now sort of really see the dangers of social media. Um, how it does make you quite anxious and depressed. So, you know, sometimes I feel a bit trapped by it because, and also like with Paul's company, because then I had to start blogging or whatever and start promoting all of that. It became very much like a job. And I don't know about you guys as writers, but you almost feel like you, it is an obligation now. You do, you know, publishers have invested in you. You actually do have to do your bit. And I do feel like, I would love to just step away from it for quite some time. So, yeah. So you're getting ready for another social media fast? I think so. Once I've finished, um, I always say that, hey, once I've finished promoting this book, I think probably I am going to um, step away for a bit because uh, I do, I just do find it, it actually gets too much and it is a huge waste of time. Like it's when I should be reading or writing. And then you can do a follow up saying my year of not getting Twitter face. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's brilliant. Thank I you. think that would be very interesting to read. And I think it would, a lot of people would relate. Um, I wanted to come back a little bit to writing process. I'm sorry, Fiona, you know how I get stuck on it. Um, <laughs> I, I'm interested in particularly with your memoir where you're taking real people and you're writing about them. But in fiction, we often get accused of stealing real characters from Mm, our worlds. mm. And I I want you to talk to us a bit about that, the difference between soapies, fiction, and memoir, how many accusations of stealing people from real life, and how much do you really do it? Um, In soapies, you know, you deal with archetypes. So I don't think it is – I mean – in fact, we have quite a lot of fun on the estate with the whole sort of political thing. So we definitely mm. 
steal tropes, I would say, but not specific people. And you do have a whole bunch of lawyers and stuff who are checking things in the channel. And I mean, sometimes you, I, I can remember like years ago on, on the one soapy, we referred to somebody, well, did I say something about a white lecturer who hadn't bathed for? <laughs> and I was like, I'm white, I can say this. And we got a complaint to, to the BC, blah, blah, blah. What is it called? BCCSA. That thing. And then you have to write an apology and a retraction and sorry. Because the implication was that all white lecturers don't bath. Hmm. So you, you do sort of, so yeah. So you have to be very careful about that. And obviously branding and stuff like that on um, Soapy. So you're quite careful with all of that. Um Fiction, I think it's, you know, I thought, oh, because I've been so anxious about this memoir coming out, um, I had to remind myself that, in fact, I'm anxious every time a book comes out that somebody's going to feel like it's pointed at them or whatever. But I think it's the same thing. We're dealing with archetypes. You know, we all think we're so incredibly special and unique, but, in fact, most of us are going through similar things. So... I don't I don't think that is actually as much of an issue as we think it is. Memoir, obviously yeah. I changed the names of my friends. I gave them all Shakespearean names so that it wouldn't um I suppose impose on them really, because I'm not talking about them per se. It's really my journey with alcohol and how I meditative myself. It doesn't really have to do with any of my friends. And obviously all your names were used because you're public figures, you know. I couldn't exactly pretend like <laughs> <laughs> pretend you wrote a book with somebody yeah, else. I wrote a book with um Janet. <laughs> Everyone's like, no, you didn't. It was Gail Schimmel. Um yeah, so have any, has anyone been upset that their real names weren't used? Have you had any kickback? No, but on I'm that? sure there will be. I'm sure people will be offended that I didn't use their real names, but that would have felt – I mean, I had a sit-down with my family where I said, you know, I've tried not to, and they were all sort of rolled their eyes and said, well, everyone will know who we are anyway, so don't bother. <laughs> but actually what I felt sort of most bad about was, in fact, being honest about my parents, was having to sort mm. of speak about things that, you know, were not particularly flattering towards them because I think we're raised not to – I mean, and talk outside of school. Yeah, yeah. not mm. to wash your dirty laundry, blah, 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 blah. You know, even though my father has been dead for 20 years this year, my mother's been dead for 13 years. So they don't really care at this point. But it did feel, you know, so I had to sort of give myself um, lectures about that, mm. where I felt, because I felt it was necessary to be honest, especially about something like drinking. I think, I think a lot of it is hidden. And that's why it continues because we pretend it's not happening. We enable, we excuse. And I think you do have to just say, listen, it actually wasn't okay. Mm. You know, um, and so much of drinking is, uh, is a learned or genetic behavior. Family is, is a big part of well, the drinking. Well, exactly. Story. Exactly. And our extended family, that was like, oh, uh, that was our thing. You know, I mean, yeah, you, you've made it clear. You had a drunken falling over family, and I don't understand how any of them are still speaking to you. <laughs> I am joking. Not all of luckily, them. Luckily, luckily, a lot are dead, so that helped. I found in fiction that, especially if it's satirical, people just don't recognize themselves. 
I've had people who were in a book come to me and say, that book was hilarious. I recognized everybody in it. You were so accurate. And I'm like, did you not recognize yourself? Because you were also in it. (laughs) That character was so awful. Yeah. Really? Just based on you. Actually, I've had that in a play. I've had that in a play where somebody came up to me and said, oh, yes, and all that stuff about your mother-in-law, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, oh, honey, that was all about you. (laughs) (laughs) So it is funny that people Uh, don't. Let's at this point be clear. We never base anything on anyone in real life. None of it is really you. Disclaimer. Any any similarity to anyone living or dead is purely coincidental. Um, Have I covered myself enough? Although, let me tell you, after I had the shrink looking at my bits in Marion, he was saying, oh, this is actually based on X, Y, and it was something in me. So in actual fact, all our characters, it's actually something in us, even the bits we don't like. Yeah. yeah. It's all part of us, you know. Are we ready for me to ask Pam what's next? Because I'm very curious about that, particularly for you, Pam, because you never know where you're going to go. You know, it, it could be a play, it could be a novel, it could be a memoir, it could be a collaboration, it could be something completely new. Do we know yet what is next? So at the moment, I am working on the screenplay of Things Unseen. So let's see if something happens with that. I do very much want to branch out into sort of limited drama series and movies. And obviously, as I keep saying, because the universe seems to be deaf, I want to be turning all of your books into limited drama series and movies. That that would really be a dream for me would be to adapt um, some of my favorite South African books for the screen, uh, both the small screen and the big screen. So, and I mean, here is the funny thing. I do find if you speak something and keep on saying it, and that's what I did with TV writing, it ends up happening. Usually not how you expect it, but yeah, it does end up happening. So that that's one thing. Um, maybe a sequel to this um, memoir. Um, I've enjoyed writing nonfiction. Mm. It's jolly hard. The editing process was very, very hard. I found it harder than fiction. Um, and then I think I'm going to work more on that thriller, Fee, that you read. Oh, lovely. I've been dying for it to come out <laughs> because I enjoyed it so much. Yeah, so I'm going to work some more on that. And I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to change it to South African setting. Okay. Mm. That could work very well. Yeah. So I think that's possibly what I'm going to do. I've got some distance from it now I'll have a look at it um, and kind of see I'm, I'm very much hoping to get some time off in June and I keep saying that as well where I can sort of devote some time to all of this but you know I keep journaling all the time so the the non-fiction stuff is always there and then <laughs> just as we think she's come to the yeah, end of her sentence I think I will probably at some stage write a book on writing uh-huh. Mm. Very interesting. Yeah. We need that in South Africa. Yeah. We need more of that. So I'm quite keen to work on something like that at some point. But yeah, but at the moment what I would really like is a holiday, I have to say. You've done teaching. I mean, it is a thing that you've done mm. throughout your mm. career is teaching people how to do the thing that you do. And I've I've seen you in action. You're very good at it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I'm even as a script editor, you are basically a teacher. And I think that's what appeals to me about script editing is that you are mentoring and guiding 
um, young writers. So that has always been probably just me being bossy, actually. I don't know. But yeah, that's always been a thing for me. And I, I do get a, a real kick out of seeing, you know, these kids that started off as interns, whatever, and, you know, they end up as commissioning editors, a channel, and famous this and famous that. And that, that gives me, like, quite a sense of achievement. Mm. That's know? lovely. Mm. So I think we're ready for the question that we ask all our guests. What do you think, Gail? Absolutely. Um, what have you been reading or listening to or watching lately that's been filling up your creative tank or irritating you beyond words or just noteworthy in some way? So what have I – okay, so I have been watching Four Weddings and a Funeral, the series. Oh, the Mindy Kaling, I watched that. Yeah, yeah. which I really loved. loved. Oh, really? I've been too scared. The, the kind of homage to both Notting Hill and Four Weddings and a Funeral and the characters popping back. And it's just lovely and gentle and some mm. great lines. I We watched the ending last night. It was just absolutely fun and just what I needed. So I really enjoyed that. And I've just watched Stella Murders, a documentary um, on Showmax about the murder of two young women. Um, is it in the Northwest? I'm not sure. Very, the cinematography was great, but as a mom, I found it quite hard to, mm. to yeah. watch. Um, but I do, I do tend to watch quite a lot of true crime, I must admit. So that's kind of on the, and of course, I have to give a shout out to Banshees of Inner Sharon. The Irish half of me gives a shout out to that. That did not get any Oscars and was robbed. Can I just say that was brilliant. Um, did you watch that in theatres? I did. I love going to um, Rosebank to Cinema Nouveau, mm-hmm. um, having a little cup of coffee and um, watching a movie because there are about four old people in there <laughs> and Paul and I, who are now probably old people too. <laughs> and yeah. Four, possibly six. <laughs> Maybe six old people. Just saying, you know, where you'd like to have an intermission so you can go and have a wee. Um <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah, that was actually great to see. And I felt sort of very proud as well of the, of Ireland, of, of, you know, getting a movie that far and whatever. And then reading wise, um, the theory of, what is it? I'm reading a Nearly now. the theory of. Nearly everything. Not quite everything. Not quite. Anyway, Cora Nodder's, um, book, which is just doing so fabulously overseas mm-hmm. and obviously, you know, part of it's set in Joburg. Um, she's a Rodin girl, a UCT girl. So I don't know. I love those kind of home connections. So I've just read that and I, I really, really loved it. Is that a novel? I it's a novel. Non-fiction. Oh, it's a novel. It is a okay. novel that deals with mathematics and it's all terribly clever. Um, so just finished that and then also just read The Close by Irish author Jane Casey. Oh, right. I've been following her on Twitter and I actually read one yeah. of those. Yeah. So I really enjoy those. I think this is book number 10. It's kind of got um, this great sort of sexual tension between the two. Is piece. that still going on after 10 books? It's still going on. It's Ross and Rachel. What can I say? Okay. <laughs> I might be ready for the payoff with you, that you sounding <laughs> You're sounding dubious. Anyway, so I, I enjoyed that. Um, what else have I read? And then... I really, really enjoyed um, Richard E. Grant's memoir. 
okay. pocket full of happiness. I've loved all his memoirs, um, but I, I very much enjoyed it. And I really enjoyed Prince Harry's memoir, and I probably get stoned and whatever for that. Not but by me, not by me. I actually found it quite heart-wrenching. Mm-hmm. You have more sympathy for for them oh, afterwards. Totally, I actually have empathy for all of them. Yeah. In fact, because at the end of the day, it's a family. Mm. You know what I mean? It might be a hugely wealthy family or whatever. But funny enough, what it reminded me of, and I think this is what I was trying to do in my memoir, was to try and just cut away just from the bullshit and go, you know what, guys, what you see on social media blah, blah, it's not our lives, you know. It's very curated because obviously we're not trying to bore or depress everybody every mm. week. But when you sort of just see people's lives, it doesn't matter how hugely famous they are or whatever, they've still got to go through the same cuck everybody mm. goes through. So, I, yeah, I found it quite um, moving, I think. Well, I've always been team Harry and Meghan. <laughs> <laughs> I have empathy for the royal family, but I actually saw someone on Facebook give a really interesting take on the whole thing. Um, she's an Irish writer, and she said that this whole thing reminds her very much of the whistleblowers who first started talking about the Catholic Church decades ago and how they were hated and vilified and destroyed and their private lives were dug into and they were called every name under the sun all in an attempt to protect that institution mm. and now she sees Harry and Meghan as whistleblowers against the institution of the royal family they're talking out of school they're telling stories that have never been told and she framed it as Diana was the first one to be an attempted whistleblower mm. and she was just shut down that never went anywhere and now they're taking that narrative and trying to take it further. And the pushback is absolutely brutal. And most people are on the side of the royal family and calling Harry and Meghan every name under the sun. But that genie can't go back in the bottle. Um, we can never unhear those stories. We can never unsee what's been put out there. And I just found that a really interesting way of framing it. That is actually a hugely interesting way. And I think the way the sort of um, tabloid press has attacked them. And it's so obvious if you, you look at what sort of comes up on your feeds and whatever, and these constant kind of attacks on them that are laughable, in fact. But if that was like directed at you every day of yeah. your life. Yeah. I mean, mm. you know, Megan did this and Harry, blah, blah, yeah. and blah, yeah, la, yeah. la, 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 la. You know, I mean. And uh, Kate for Middleton's your, such an angel and Megan's the devil. Yeah, and- for your mental health, it would be you know, hugely, hugely damaging. So, yeah, I think that is a good way of putting it. I do. But I think, but I do kind of think all of them are victims in a way. Yes. Just some of them have of not. Of the institution. Yeah, of the institution. And I think we've got to be very careful where you, yeah, an institution kind of becomes this thing that has to be protected, that has to be protected. And you've got to speak out. Very sure. interesting. Yeah, I, I'm not talking about it because then my phone will hear me and my phone already believes that I'm obsessed with the royal family. <laughs> it basically gives me so much royal family content and I click just enough that it keeps coming back. Mm-hmm. I'm not interested, phone. I don't want to know more about them. <laughs> I believe Britain should be a republic. <laughs> yes, no, you think that'll give me even more. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, well, thank you so much for your time, Pam. This has been absolutely delightful. Thank Thanks you so much. Her. Thanks for having me, guys. We want everyone to follow Pam on social media. She's on Facebook, on Twitter, and on Instagram. And most importantly, we want everyone to buy her novel that is still in print, that's Chasing Marion, that she co-wrote. Also, her sober, curious memoir, My Year of Not Getting Shit-Faced, published by Jonathan Ball. It's in all the bookstores right now. You won't even have to ask for it. It will be there front and center so please buy it. And it is an excellent read. I'm a friend of Pam, so it's hard to say it without feeling like I'm, I'm cheating, but it really is an excellent read. I have just finished it and I loved every page of it. So that was a great chat with Pam. It's always a pleasure to talk to her. She's always such fun. She is. I enjoyed it so much. Gail, what did you get out of what Pam had to say? Fiona, it's a bit upsetting for me because the thing that made the biggest impression on me was she talked about the need to write quickly mm. and the need when you write quickly, you get it out well. And you remember I started today saying maybe I have to be more realistic. Mm. Now I'm wondering if I need to be more realistic. Now I'm thinking maybe I should be writing more a day. Maybe I need to be getting this out of me even quicker. Mm. Um, so I'm a little bit confused about where I stand on my own writing as a result, but that is the thing that made a huge impression on me. And then a small thing I'm taking away is that I need to watch four weddings and a funeral. I've been I've been avoiding it because I don't want to ruin that beautiful experience that the movie is for me. But I think maybe I need to get a little bit braver and give it a watch. You know, you don't even have to be brave. It has got nothing to do with the original movie. It's just the concept of there are four weddings and there's a funeral. The people are completely different. Uh, the setting is similar, but it's just a total reconception of that situation. The original movie was very, very white, as all romantic comedies were in those days. And this is just wonderfully diverse. The people are beautiful to look at. The clothes are gorgeous. The actors are so charming. The script is so engaging. Um, I watched it probably maybe two or three years ago and loved every minute. So I endorse that recommendation. Fabulous. I will do that. <laughs> In terms of what I got out of Pam's talk, it was going back to this idea of the cliffhangers and how in a TV series, if you know you've got an ad break mm -hmm. coming up, if you know you're going to cut to a different scene, uh, if you know it's a Friday night, you have to put a cliffhanger in. And for us, that is really structured around chapters. Mm. Now, as a reader, I know that if it's late at night and I know I've got to go to bed, I'm kind of thinking, all right, I'll read to the end of this chapter and then mm. I'll stop. And sometimes there are books that end the chapter in such an irresistible way that your best intentions go out the window, you turn the page and you start the next chapter. Absolutely. And I think that's really what we all aim at as writers. We want to hear that someone stayed up till three in the morning because they just had to read one more chapter. Exactly. So um, I'm thinking, don't make the chapters too satisfying, too much of a comfortable place to end. Keep it moving. 
make it irresistible so that the reader just has to turn the page and start the next chapter. You're making me feel like I have to now go back over my work in progress and see how the chapters are ending. Life's just getting harder and harder for me with all we're learning, Fiona. <laughs> What's your writing advice for the week? Well, it's it's similar to what you were talking about, which is this idea of writing fast. And I think it's more, you don't have to write fast, but don't write too slowly. Don't second guess yourself mm. and don't self edit too much as you're going along. Mm. So if you write a sentence and then you read over that sentence and you rework it and you rework it and you rework it mm. until it sounds absolutely perfect, it will take you an hour to get through a hundred words. Mm. And that is just too slow. You, you can't have that momentum. You can't stay in love with your story if you mm. are writing that mm. slowly. So, um, that would be my advice for the week. Um, Put that second guessing aside and try to get some momentum going. What about you, Very good advice. Okay, I've got two pieces of advice. The one is something I heard on a podcast that I just, it stuck with me, um, which is start as close to the end as you can. So, you know, I think it's also it goes with advice always not to give information dumps at the beginning of a book, start in the action advice like that, Mm -hmm. but that you don't need to set your story up from while I was born and da da da. You start as close to the action as you can. And I think that's great advice. And then my other piece of advice, we've talked a lot about dialogue today. Um, so I think it, it fits in well today and it's something I feel so strongly about. You can always tell a newbie writer because when they write dialogue they try to use different words for said so instead of saying right said Fiona they say right whispered Fiona right exclaimed Fiona and the very worst of them all right ejaculated Fiona Um, (laughs) never ever do that one Um, and they think that they're writing in a colorful way because that's what Mm -hmm. we taught at school but said actually needs to be an invisible word it needs to be something the reader reads past and if you're reading using these fancy words the reader stumbles on them the reader is now distracted from the dialogue into this word you've used instead of said so almost have a rule for myself that once every 10 pages I can say something other than said but other than that stick to said and it really is one of the ways a newbie and a pro you can differentiate and another one is to chuck an adverb in there so right Fiona whispered angrily yes that that really is telling and not showing and it's it's another newbie writer sin I would say and also you're wasting words because what you can do is you can use a whole phrase um, that, that will give more color. And so right said Fiona, I could tell that she was feeling a seething rage but did not want to express it from her soft voice. You know, mm-hmm. you can give a mm-hmm. whole explanation of what's going on if you need to. Mm-hmm. And they also talk about how often you don't need to say Right, said Fiona softly, because you've just spent the last four pages explaining that Fiona is in a cupboard when she says this and that there are people outside who, if they find her there, will kill her. Mm -hmm. You don't need to say softly because if she was speaking loudly, well, that just wouldn't make sense. And if you're writing well, you shouldn't need that adverb. Brilliant, brilliant. I love it. So I think that's us for the week. As usual, you can find us on Twitter and on Instagram. Please join the chat 
Tell us if anything that Pamela said struck a chord with you, if any of our advice is something that you've tried or something that you tried and didn't work for you. Um, We would love to join in the conversation. So please stay in touch and we'll see you next week. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.